Good morning. Welcome. So glad you're here today. If this is your first time here, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, we're so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Hopefully you enjoyed worship so far. I have, I mean, as some of my favorite songs in worship this morning, I was over there just really, really um, getting lost in worship and almost didn't make my cue to come up on stage. Well, who here loves the snow? Anybody? Man, is it gorgeous out there? I know, that was like, that was, there's like five of us. There's five of us. No, I love the snow. I think it's beautiful. I don't know if it's those Kincaid paintings I grew up looking at or uh, the hymn that says uh, that it's his blood that washes us white as snow. I'm always reminded of that when I, I wake up, walk out the door, and all I see is white. I think about that. It's just a really beautiful picture. But um, yeah, we got a little bit of snow, but it's glad to see that everybody made it out today. Well, um, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Adam started us out in our new sermon series called Jesus Stories. Adam, great job. I want to thank you for doing the last two weeks covering for me. It was awesome. But this Jesus Stories is going to be a great sermon series. Today, we actually get to start into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest sermons ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever walk the earth. Jesus preached this sermon as he saw a crowd, a multitude of people, and his disciples with him. This is a powerful, powerful sermon, and um, I'm excited to jump into it today. We're going to be in a section called the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verses 1 through 12 today. That's our text. It's known as the Beatitudes because it goes through each verse saying, blessed be, blessed be, and, and tells us what that goes with. So Uh, Matthew chapter 5, as you open into that. You know, we live in a really interesting time in history. I never imagined I would see or experience the things that I've seen and experienced. It's truly shocking. Our culture is shifting faster than we ever imagined it would. Technologically, philosophically, theologically, and morally. Scripture has a lot to say about all of these things, and as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be challenged to take a long, hard look at some of the things that we're accustomed to, or even embrace. You know, Jesus was completely counter-culture. Some of the things that, that he says were completely opposite of what people walking the planet at that time were used to hearing. In fact, a lot of the things that Jesus said are completely opposite of what you and I have grown up learning, what our parents taught us or what our school teachers taught us or what our professors taught us. Completely opposite. Jesus said some of the most shocking and controversial things throughout his life. And we're going to see a lot of those things in the Sermon of the Mount. I think we're going to find this passage of Scripture just as challenging and relevant as his original audience did. Let's pray before we read God's Word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've had today, this time of worship where we focused our hearts and minds on you, Father. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who's made a way for us, that we can come to you, that we can can petition you, that we can lay our lives at your feet, that we can come to you in prayer, that we can rely on your Holy Spirit that lives inside us to illuminate the words of your scriptures to us. Father, we 
lay our lives at your feet. We lay our tomorrow at your feet. We say, have your way. We trust you, Father. God, I pray that you would use me this morning. Give me the words to share, that you would be glorified. God, that we would grow in our faith to know you more. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One thing I want to point out about what Jesus says here is how shocking it would have been to hear it. Um, His audience at the time when he's saying this is mostly Jewish. It's mostly the Israelites. Now, the history we've known a little bit because we went through it um, in our uh, Christmas series, but the Israelites were God's chosen people. They, they were um, set aside. They were uh, a select people that God had set aside for himself, that they would usher in the coming of Jesus. We just talked about through that, through the Christmas series, right? So these Israelites, the Jewish people, had this, this kind of mentality, understanding that they were God's chosen, and that this Messiah, Jesus, was coming, and he was going to to what they thought he was going to do is he was going to come in and usher in this new kingdom and he would, he'd probably just, you know, obliterate Rome and, and all this, this stuff that was going on in their lives. And Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who mourn. This was the exact opposite thing they were actually thinking they were going to hear. Uh, They were thinking they were going to hear, like, I am here to set up shop, and I'm going to make all this right, you guys. I know that Rome is is just taking its toll on you and all this other stuff, and I'm just going to just take care of all of it. But that's not what Jesus says. It's the exact opposite of what they were expecting. He blows their minds with a truth that would eventually lead to his death. I did not come for the well, but I came for the broken or poor in spirit or those who know their need for a savior. You see, the Israelites had developed a self-righteous, holier-than-thou or entitlement mentality because of who they were. Now, the only reason I point this out is because of our propensity towards the same thought process. Have you ever found yourself thinking things like this? 
man, I did really good last week. I, I read my Bible every day. I prayed every day. I went to church on Sunday. I'm one of the good Christians. Okay, that last part, maybe we don't verbalize or actually think, but it lies underneath that entire thought process. Anything good that I do or think, that we do or think, anything good that we do or think is a grace from a merciful Father. It is a grace from God. Let that sink in for just a second. Anything good that I think or say or do is a grace from God. Any claim for the credit for any good thing I do or think is robbery of the one who graciously empowers us to do it. So the first point I want to give you in today's sermon, as you came in, you should have received a a program, and there's a couple fill-ins and blanks you can follow along with as we go through the sermon today. The first fill-in is this. God's kingdom is now and not yet, and that's good news. It's good news. The kingdom of God, as we see it in Scripture, could be kind of explained this way. It's the rule and reign of God. God's kingdom is God's rule and reign. We live in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And this creates a a holy tension that we all feel. Sin is wreaking havoc on humanity. Not the havoc that it could create because of God's common grace, which is a grace that he lavishes on all humanity. And then there's the point that Christ came, and when he left, he sent his Holy Spirit that lives in Christians today. And we know that Christ defeated sin and death on the cross, but will come again one day to establish his kingdom or his rule and reign forevermore. So we live in this tension, this in-between time where Christ has come. He defeated sin and death on the cross. He rose again and ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. But he's coming back again one day. I love how John Piper says it. He says it this way, that God's kingdom is present yet future. It is fulfilled, but not consummated. Now, why is God's kingdom being now and not yet good news? Well, there is hope in the now kingdom because God is with us in that his Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we are kingdom expanders in that we share the gospel or good news of Jesus with everyone we meet, hoping that they will respond to to the good news of Jesus Christ. We have a job to do. God gave us a job to do. Jesus' last words were to, uh, to us were to sending us out to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That the Messiah has come, he's made a way, and the, the lack that all humanity feels, this void that all humanity has in their hearts, can be filled by the one true King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. That's the good news. He's given us a job to do. There's hope in the now kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. There's hope in the now kingdom because Christ came and, and lived a life 
He was truly God and truly man. So he doesn't sit now at the right hand of God, totally disconnected from all humanity and the sufferings that we face. Jesus lived a real life. He was tempted. Um, Pastor Adam talked about that last week, the temptation of Christ. Jesus went through temptation. Jesus went through struggle and suffering. Jesus was betrayed by one closest to him. He was left alone in his suffering. They all fled. They all ran away, except for a couple. Jesus was betrayed. He was beaten. He was lied about. And eventually he would be murdered. So he's not sitting up by God the Father, totally disconnected from our suffering, from our pain, from what we feel. We serve a God who can come alongside of us and say, man, I know what you're going through. I am here with you. I am for you. Did you know that Jesus is for you, that he loves you, that he cares about you? And it's not a loving and a caring that doesn't understand. Because Jesus became a man and put on flesh and lived a life for 33 years on this planet. Had a job. He was a carpenter. He really, really understands what you're going through. And he loves you. And he wants to walk with you through it. So we have hope in the now kingdom because of Christ and what he did, who he was. Now, there's hope in the not yet kingdom because we serve a conquering king who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So in this not yet kingdom, in this now kingdom, we pray knowing that there's a not yet kingdom, that there's a war that has been won. So when we pray, we don't pray wondering, we pray knowing. When we don't live wondering, we live knowing. We know the end of the story. We know how it goes. We can actually go to the last book, Revelation, and we can see how this story unfolds. We can see how our story, humanity's story unfolds. What God is going to do. He gets really specific about it. Jesus has already won. Is, are there any Lord, uh, Lord of the Rings fans here? Okay, good, good. You might, I, I remember watching Lord of the Rings, that first movie that came out, and um, there's this one scene in it that was just so powerful. I remember watching it the first time. It was um, Aragorn and uh, Boromir, and they were fighting alongside of everybody else, and, and um, they're fighting the orcs, and it's, it's this really intense scene, and, and they, they sort of win the battle, but... Boromir takes a nasty hit and he's down. And Aragorn comes over to him and he's holding him in his arms and Boromir's dying. And, and there was this the real rift between the two. They're both from the kingdom of man or whatever it was. And, and uh, Aragorn is supposed to be the king, but he's kind of avoiding his response. All this stuff's going on. And, and so Boromir didn't, there was a, just a lot of friction there. But he's dying in Aragorn's arms and and his last words to him, he looks to him and he says, my, what is it, my brother, my captain, my king. And he dies. It's just this real powerful scene and, and all of this pictures it created in my mind and everything else. But the story goes on and Aragorn does all this to find the ring and everything else. We know that Aragorn goes on to be the king and he does really good and everything else. 
And as you, we all know the end of the story, right? Well, let's watch this clip real quick. We'll talk about it. They took the little ones. He's down. Frodo. Where is Frodo? I let Frodo go. Then you did what I could not. I tried to take the ring from him. The ring is beyond our reach now. Forgive me. I did not see. I have failed you all. No, more, man. You fought bravely. Your honor. Leave it. It is over. The world of men will fall. And all will come to darkness. And my city to ruin. I do not know what strength is in my blood. But I swear to you, I will not let the white city fall. seeing that scene for the first time, right? I was grabbing the Kleenex, buddy. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, my brother, my captain, my king. But we already know the story. I already gave it away. I mean, I was sitting here talking about it. I told you that Aragorn's going to go off. He's going to be king. We've already seen the movies. We know the end of the story. So now when I watch it, I'm not like grabbing for the Kleenex. I already know what's going to happen. It's sad that Boromir dies, but we know that what he said to Aragorn is going to spur Oregon on to the end to, to be the king that he was called to be, to lead his people. We already know it. It's not as powerful. It's not as hurtful. It doesn't take me to the Kleenex. And that's, that's how it should be in our Christian life. Christ has already won. These battles that we're fighting are painful and there's suffering. There's all this stuff going on in our lives, but we know the end of the story. We know that we serve a conquering king who's already beat it all. We may lose some battles, but we know the war is already won. When we know the outcome, 
We can handle or deal with the rough parts or difficult parts a little easier or better. The enemy may hit you in the face and we may lose a battle here or there. But remember who already won the war and fight your battles from a one war perspective. You might want to write this down. Unwavering confidence in Christ's victory is our greatest asset. Unwavering confidence in Christ's victory is our greatest asset. The key to victory is believing Christ already won. We can think about it. We can read about it and say, oh yeah, Christ already won. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's already won. But when life gets really hard, when life gets difficult, man, it's hard to to live that out. It's hard to walk that out. It's hard to believe that. Unwavering confidence in Christ's victory is our greatest asset. Number two, second feeling is this. Blessing comes from a Christ-centered life. Blessing comes from a Christ-centered life. You could, my entire sermon today could be summed up in this one point. This one point. Circle it, underline it, put a star beside it. Blessing comes from a Christ-centered life. I, I do a ton of research on, on my sermons and stuff well, because I want to treat the Word of God seriously. So I watch tons of sermons from uh, pastors I respect in different things. And so I go through lots and lots of sermons. And I found that a lot of the treatment of the um, Beatitudes from pastors uh, are very different. Very different. Um, uh, a lot of pastors' sermons will be entitled, um, how, to, how to Be Blessed by God, the, the Beatitudes. Finding Blessing in Life, the Beatitudes. Um, and here's, here's something I want us always to remember as a church. The... The central piece of this book, the number one piece of this book, the, the one thing that everything in here is written about, around, um, supported by, everything, everything in here is the person, Jesus Christ. It is about him. It is about a creator God who loved and created humanity so much that he sent his only son to die for us conquering sin and death like I've already talked about, but everything in here is around Jesus Christ. If we ever, ever start reading this book with me at the center or you at the center or humanity as the centerpiece, we are in a world of hurt. The Beatitudes weren't written to show us how we can be blessed by God. You cannot go through the Beatitudes as a checklist and be like, oh, now I'm going to be blessed by God. It's, the Beatitudes are not a quarter. You throw in a God slot machine and pull the trigger and you're going to get the reward. That's not what the Beatitudes are about. The Beatitudes are written and based around the person of Jesus Christ. So as we go through this, I really want us to keep that in mind. Does God want to bless us? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the greatest blessing is found in the person of Jesus Christ and in relationship with him. And that's what we're going to find out. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is someone who understands their desperate need for God. Their desperate need for God. In our mourning, 
We grasp our fragility and dependency on Christ. Meekness is not weakness, but rather a strong, unwavering trust in God's power and justice, and that he will fulfill justice. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness can only come out of a close, intimate relationship with God, rooted deep in his word and with a love for his truth. Purity in heart can only come from asking God to search our hearts and reveal any wicked way in us. And in his grace, his Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our depravity and sin and gives us the strength to grow in him. Peacemakers are those who can see a situation through the lens of scripture and gain an understanding through submission to God. That his Holy Spirit moves in our minds, in our hearts, as we read his word. When persecution comes, and it will come, because of our commitment to God's truth, we can stand strong because he is with us and he is strong. Blessing comes when we live a life abandoned of self and devoted to God. I'm going to say that again. Blessing comes when we live a life abandoned of self and devoted to God. It comes in real relationship with our creator. Not some far off distant knowing, but a real knowing in relationship. So often throughout scripture, God parallels marriage between a man and a woman and Christ in the church, Christ in, in you and me. God's, Christ's relationship with us. Why? Why would God use the most intimate of relationships in humanity? Husband and wife. Where his word says, we become one flesh, are joined together and become one flesh and live a life of commitment, an entire life committed to one another until death do we part. That we raise kids together, we live together and so forth. Why would God take that relationship and parallel that, compare that with Christ and the church? Because God expects for us to be in real relationship with him. He doesn't just want us to know about him. He wants us to know him. Real. God is real. And he wants to be real in your life. He wants to walk with you through the joys and victories in your life, celebrating with you. He wants to walk with you through the valleys and the hardships that we would walk with him in those things. Do you know him? Are you in relationship with him? He reveals himself to us over and over and over again in his word, that we would go and, and, and learn about him, who he is, that he would reveal himself. The Bible says that, that this, this book is a living book. It's, it's alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, splitting humanity at the very core of who we are from, through bone and marrow, it says. Do you know him? Do you know him? There's a prayer that I read that was just so shocking to me, written hundreds of years ago by a guy named John Wesley. 
This is a prayer of covenant that, that he would lead people through to come into relationship with the Lord. Hear these words. This is a lot different than what we pray. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to work. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed Father, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. When's the last time you prayed, put me to suffering? I read that and I'm like, wow, man, I thought I was doing pretty good. <laughs> and then you read something like that. Uh, I was reading something, um, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Um, his theology is a little quirky, so I'll just give that a, a, a little disclaimer. But um, I was reading this uh, part in Mere Christianity, and this was kind of some observations of a, another person who had read it. He wrote this. It says this. How much of myself must I give? The ordinary idea which we all have before we become Christians is this. We take as the starting point our ordinary self with its various desires and interests. We then admit that something else, call it morality or decent behavior or the good of society, has claims on this self. Claims which interfere with its own desires. What we mean by being good is giving in to those claims. Some of the things the ordinary self wanted to do turn out to be what we call wrong. Well, we must give them up. Other things turn out to be what we call right. Well, we shall have to do them. But we are hoping all the time that when all the demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. In fact, we are very like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on because we are still taking our natural self as the starting point. Two results. As long as we are thinking that way, one or the other of two results is likely to follow. Either we give up trying to be good or else we become very unhappy indeed. For make no mistake, if you are really going to try to meet all the demands made on the natural self, it will not have enough left over to live on. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self, which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, will get angrier and angrier. In the end, 
You will either give up trying to be good or else become one of those people who, as they say, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way, always wondering why the others do not notice it more and always making a martyr of yourself. And once you have become that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have been if you had remained, frankly, selfish, harder and easier. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Both harder and easier than what we are all trying to do. You have noticed, I expect, that Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard, sometimes as very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it is going to be like being beaten to death in a concentration camp. Next minute, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he means both. And one can just see why both are true. So how do we live this out? What does it look like to, to live in a relationship with Christ so strong and so close that, that when we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. When I read that, I don't think of, oh my gosh, I got to do this, 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 and this. You know what he's doing here? You know what he's doing? He's actually telling us who we are. Because he goes on in the very next verse, in verse 13, he says, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's the thought process Jesus is going through when he says, blessed be. He says, you are poor in spirit. You are desperate for me. That's why I'm here. Now, it's interesting to note as we look at the Beatitudes, the shape that, that Christ formed it in. Listen to this. In the first, in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we go through the rest, he, will, he says, they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. The tense changes up into the very last one where he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This present grace that God has given us is looking to the future grace in Christ. He is coming. 
So how do we live in relationship with him? We live knowing that he is here with us and that he is coming again. He's telling us who we are. That's one of the coolest things I was reading as I went through the Beatitudes. You know, it's, I love the scriptures that we have them in English and everything else. And I love that we have chapters and, and numbered verses that we can actually see how they go. But we have a tendency to break these things up as if it's one thought. Well, the Beatitudes are part of an extremely long sermon that we're going to be going through over the next few weeks. And if we just read through that and we blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those, blessed, blessed are you. You are salt of the earth. You are light in this world. It's who we are. It's who you are. God's calling us deeper. God is calling us closer. Now you may be here today and maybe you've been a Christian since second grade. Or maybe you just met Jesus a couple weeks ago. I have the same thing for, to tell you. God wants to bring you closer. God wants to take you deeper. He is not done with you. You're going to hear me say this a million times. God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He has plans for you. Plans that go beyond anything you dreamed. Anything that you've come up with in your mind. Things that are so much better. So much better. So much more glorifying to him. God has set good things aside for you to do. If you're not using the gifts that God's put in you, if you're not serving him, you are missing out. The gifts that God has given each one of us are for his kingdom. They are for him. And when we just sit on them and we don't use them, we are robbing the kingdom. It's a, it is a double benefit. So when we use the gifts that God has given us, I change and I grow and I get the blessing of using the gifts that I have. Matt, do you enjoy serving in the youth ministry? Is it awesome or what? Matt's using his gifts in youth ministry and it's a huge blessing to him. It is a huge blessing. But here's the coolest thing is my kids get the benefit of Matt's service. Adam, our youth pastor, gets the benefits of serving alongside Matt and, and seeing God use Matt and see the kids respond to Matt in, in amazing ways that they wouldn't respond to Adam in. We all have gifts that God's given us. And when we just sit on them, we're not salt, we're not light, we're not the things that God's called us to be. God is calling you to use the gifts that he's given you. There's teachers and and service leaders out there just sitting there not using your gifts. I want to challenge you this morning. Whatever God is calling you to, step out into it. I know it's scary. I know it's hard. I know it's a commitment. But there's nothing better. There's nothing better than serving the Lord. I was, was, was in this conversation last weekend with David. He played bass today. He's our, one of our guitarists. Phenomenal guitarist. Really good guitarist, isn't it? And uh, I overheard him talking to Jesse about his band. I didn't know he had a band. And so I went up to him and I just said, hey, I heard you talking to Jesse. When's your band playing? I, maybe me and Janelle, we'd love to come see your band play. And he goes, oh, no, I'm, I, we don't, I don't play in a band that plays in bars. I, um, I lead a, a youth uh, worship team from the school I teach at. And so we do worship. And I was just like, he goes, he says, 
I don't know exactly how he said it, but he says, I, I think um, the gifts that God's given me are best used for the church. I was like, what? <laughs> when's the last time I talked to a musician that said something like that, right? Usually I'm on the argument side. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I used to tour. I was in a band, uh, band for a long time and toured all over the United States. But um, it's, I was always arguing with uh, musicians, telling them, listen, listen, God gave you this gift. It's cool that you go and play with your buddies at a bar or whatever, whatever. But if you really want fulfillment, if you really want to see the joy of the gift that God's given you, there is nothing better than playing with your family on Sunday mornings and worshiping God together and leading your church, your community, your friends, your family in Christ and worshiping and focusing on him. There's nothing better. I've, I've played at, at huge events outside in front of 10, 15,000 people. It's fun. But it, nothing, nothing compares to playing here at Mission View and leading you in worship to Christ our King. There's no, there's no comparison. It's so much more fulfilling. And I get in arguments with musicians about that all the time. But David understands the gifts that God's given him. And he's pouring them out for God's kingdom sacrificially with excellence. I mean, you can hear it. He puts his whole heart into everything. God is calling you to use the gifts that he's given you for his kingdom. Don't sit on it. Don't waste it. Use it for him. Use it for him. The last point in the program is this, number three. Look to the not yet kingdom for a now kingdom joy. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. That is really, really good news. We will see God the Father face to face. And all of the struggles, all of the depravity of man, all of the mystery that we see in Scripture and all of the questions that linger in our hearts and in our minds that we are frustrated with will be answered. The Bible says that when Jesus comes again, he will set up shop, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of the wrong that we have seen and experienced in this world will be made right. Jesus is coming again. There's this really neat story about Jesus as he's sitting down and the children coming to him. The disciples are kind of whisking them away. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let them come to me. It's, it's like these who will inherit the kingdom. We're going to be like children seeing our dad again. Have you ever seen those videos of um, uh, the servicemen coming back? Surprising their kids. Check this out. This is a great video. My dad is a, an American soldier. My dad is a hero, my superhero. So wonderful that Natalie's dad takes care of us out of the country and in the country. Oh, Mrs. Sofko, did I do it again? I'm sorry. I missed somebody in the back. 
If you're new and we've never met you this year, we'd love to meet you. Oh, Mrs. Weller, how are you? Good to see you. I know I've seen you before. If you're new and you'd like to come right up front, please be sure you do. Those are great stories, aren't they? Our dads tell us who we are. They model for us. They're a protector, provider. But we have a heavenly father who's our protector and our provider. And he tells us who we really are. He says that we're his. He says that he loves us. That he's made a way for us. And that he's coming again. He's going to be back. You know what? We're going to be like those little kids. There ain't going to be any tough guys on the day of Jesus Christ. We're all going to be those little kids that have been waiting, waiting for years and years for that one who's told us who we are, who's protected us, who's provided for us, who's made a way for us. We're all going to be little kids. Jesus is coming again. This world and this life, it may be hard, but when it gets hard, look to the not yet kingdom for a now kingdom joy. Remember, Remember, he's coming again for you and me. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, are so humbled by your grace and your mercy. We look into your word and we see these words that say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Father, we don't fully grasp all of those things, but we know you. And we run to you, Father. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives. And Lord, help us to be a people that sacrificially lay down our lives for others, that we would pour out our gifts for you in your kingdom. Lord, you've given us a job to do. There are hundreds of thousands of people, even in Stark County, that don't know you. Coworkers, family members, neighbors, friends that need to know you, Father. So use us up. Use us up for your kingdom. Use Mission View for your kingdom. We pray all this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.